Hey, one more thing I just remembered too. You all know Erica got married this weekend, our youth pastor. Woo! So I don't know if she's watching. Hopefully not. She should be doing other things. But, uh, but if, if she is, hi, Erica. Congrats. And Graham is her husband. So they will both be up here in a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't think they'll be here next weekend, but they should be, I think, the weekend after that. So, so Eric and Graham, um, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> Great to have them. So, Okay. So while a New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, was asked what he could tell his children on his deathbed, he said, look at Jesus. That's what I'd tell them. Look at Jesus. And Wright explained, the person who walks out of the pages of the Gospels to meet us is just central and irreplaceable. He's always a surprise, he said. We never have Jesus in our pockets. He's always coming at us from different angles. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, Wright said, look at Jesus and go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as the central character. Look at Jesus, right? Well, that's great advice to give to anybody. And what I find kind of amazing is how easy it is for any of us who call ourselves Christians to forget to do it. (laughs) Uh, To make something other than Jesus the focus of our attention, the focus of our lives, to make something other than Jesus, whether that's a particular moral standard or religious practice or political agenda or uh, some cause that we're passionate about, to make something other than Jesus the definitive standard of what it means to be a Christian. We're told in Acts 11 that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. Now that label, when it first was put on them, was not meant to be a compliment. The word literally meant little Christs, and it was used as an insult. It was a jeer, you could say, as in, look, there go those little Christs kind of thing. That's what they were saying. But the believers adopted the name, saying, yeah, that is who we are. Yeah, or at least it's who we want to be, little Christ. We want to be like Jesus. Well, last week I, I started a new sermon series taking us through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And as I said then, this letter was written by Paul to warn those Colossian believers to reject some new teachings they were hearing that claimed they needed something more than Jesus. You know, something in addition to Jesus. Some secret knowledge that most people couldn't understand if they were going to be truly spiritual people. And Paul was telling them, no, you simply need to be rooted in Jesus. And that's what we're calling this series. And just like those Christians back then, you know, we want to be little Christs too. Amen? We really do. You know, we want to be little Christs who are rooted in Jesus, who are becoming like Jesus. And so today's passage, as we dive back into Colossians, is all about who Jesus is and what that means for us. So today, we are going to look at Jesus. Ready? Let's pray. So Lord, um, just come and speak to us this morning, we ask. Come, Holy Spirit, and, and fill us up 
Lord. I pray that you would fill us up to overflowing so that what you pour into us, we can just pour back out today and all through the week, Lord. So fill us up to overflowing with your presence, with your goodness, uh, with your word, and let, let it change us. Let it work in us to do that work of transformation, to make us to be more and more like you, Jesus. Amen. All right, this is Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. <clears throat> Yowza. <laughs> the late Catholic priest and uh, author Andrew Greeley was quoted in the Chicago Sometimes a number of years ago saying that much of the history of Christianity has been devoted to domesticating Jesus, to reducing that elusive, enigmatic, paradoxical person to dimensions we can comprehend, understand, and convert to our own purposes. So far, he wrote, it hasn't worked. <laughs> well, this passage I just read in Colossians is, is viewed by biblical scholars, it's a poem. Now, we wouldn't necessarily pick up on it being a poem because it you know, it doesn't rhyme, um, but it, it's in Greek, it's a poem, and, uh, and this poem in Colossians reflects the very same truth. You can't domesticate Jesus. You can't put him in a box. You can't think you have him all figured out and then use him for your own purposes. That never works. But you can give your life to Jesus and follow him and love him, and know him, and be caught up into all that he is. Amen? Yeah. Now, we don't know for sure if Paul wrote this poem, or if he was quoting something the Christians in Colossae would have already known, something that had been circulating around. It's possible. Some people think, scholars think, that this was perhaps a song that they sang for worship. Would have been quite the song. But uh, either way, it is a brilliant work of theology. It begins by telling us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You know, when I really began to grasp what that means, it transformed my relationship with God. I realized that if, if God is like Jesus, if that's who God is, I can trust him. I don't have to be afraid of him. I understood then that God isn't watching me from heaven with some kind of a checklist just waiting for me to mess up 
which is kind of how I grew up thinking about him, you know, and more or less disgusted with me most of the time, right? No, if God is like Jesus, then he's for me. His love for me really is unconditional. You know, you know, does he want me to grow? Does he want me to mature and be transformed? Absolutely, of course he does. But not because he's mad at me, but because he's for me and wants me to come into the fullness of his life. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God fleshed out for us. Now, toward the end of the poem, the same idea is repeated. It says, for God was pleased to have all, not part, but all of his fullness dwell in him, dwell in Jesus. See, it's not, it's not like God is out there somewhere, yeah, and, and we look at Jesus and we see some of what God is like in Jesus, and then we look somewhere else and we see some other parts of what God is like, and then we mix it all together, and that gives us the full picture of God. No. Jesus is the full picture. He is the fullness of God. People often talk about how God, as described in the Old Testament, seems different from Jesus. Have you ever thought that? I know a lot of us have thought that. And so we think, well, maybe God's a little bit of both. But what we're not realizing is that through the pages of the Old Testament, what we're doing is we're catching glimpses of who God is as he reveals to the Israelites that he is not like the gods of Egypt or he's not like all the other gods in, in the lands around them that they knew about. And those glimpses of God are just glimpses, and they're sometimes blurred or, or muddied by the Israelites' misunderstandings about God. The picture of who God is becomes more and more clear as we move through the Bible toward Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, we see, oh, this is who he really is. This is what God is really like. It's like one of the prophets wrote, forget which one, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. I think that's a picture of what's going on through the scripture as we move toward Jesus and we come to the full day when we then see the fullness of who God really is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is what God is like because Jesus is God fleshed out for us. So look at Jesus. Amen? And how does Jesus most clearly show us what God is like? Yeah, you know, when did he most clearly show us what God is like? Well, that's verse 20. Through the cross. Shedding his blood for us. Dying for us taking the weight of our sin and our shame, taking the pain of all of the brokenness of all of creation upon himself so that he could reconcile all things to God, all things to himself. Everything on earth that says and everything in heaven. What does that leave out? Can't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much everything, I think. So look at Jesus. That's what Jesus shows us God is like. 
So then framed by the beginning and the end of this poem that, that, that tells, what, tells us uh, that Jesus is God and it, and it shows us what God is like, we then read in the middle of the poem that Jesus is the head of all things. Jesus is the source of all things, right? He created all things. So in other words, the God who made all things is God creator. And this God who rules the universe, who is over all things, ruling over all things, is not like we feared a ruthless tyrant like the pagan gods. He is Jesus, our God of utter self-giving love whom we can trust completely. Jesus holds all things together. I always think whenever I read that, I heard somebody, when I was in my 20s, somebody did this sermon once, and they talked about how when Jesus died on the cross, you know, it says the earth started to quake, the sun went dark. He said the God who holds all things together dies on the cross and the universe starts to crumble. That's a picture, isn't it? Yeah. This God who holds all things together, he made the original creation. Well, that God is also transforming it all into the new creation. Jesus is the bridge between the old and the new. Jesus is the beginning. He's the firstborn of the dead. In other words, Jesus is the pattern. He is the blueprint for who we are becoming as we move toward new creation. Uh, it's who he is transforming us to be. Jesus is the pattern of what we are becoming like. I mean, this is a word of incredible hope, isn't it? I mean, it really is. It's a word of incredible hope, and it's all telling us to look at Jesus. Let me read on. This is verses 21 to 23. <clears throat> Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. <clears throat> you know, Lisa and I both like to go uh, walking. Uh, we walk most mornings at 6 and uh, usually every evening. And, and then when we can, we love to get out like in the woods, right? Go hiking in uh, forests and parks, out on trails, that kind of thing. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that uh, when we went to California for my son's wedding back uh, about five or six weeks ago, we went hiking in Muir Woods, this forest of giant redwood trees where, uh, when we were out there. That's a shot of us. That's actually us in the picture, although it's hard to tell. Gives you, again, the scale of the trees, right? An amazing place. But one of the nice things about hiking in a place like Muir Woods is that every now and then, you come to a signpost with a map of the trails on it with a mark on the map saying... What does it say? You are here, right? You are here. And it's really helpful because when you're out on the trail in a forest, it's easy to have no idea where you are. 
I've experienced that a few times. I always remember, too, Daniel Boone, I think, said about his wilderness excursions, I've never been lost, but I was a mite confused once for a few days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> been a mite confused. Well, Paul was probably aware that that poem we just talked about, I mean, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. It's almost overpowering. And, and remember, Paul wasn't there to explain it to the Colossians. So on their own, they might have thought, wow, this is, I mean, amazing stuff you're telling us, Paul, but so what? What does it have to do with me? So now Paul launches into this next section where he's saying, well, this isn't all just about God and the cosmos and everything. This is about you. If the poem you think of as like a map of all things, think of the poem like a map of who God is and and creation and redemption and all things. It's kind of like this diagram, putting it all on into a, a poetic form. Well, now Paul is saying, and you are here on that map. Remember the context of this whole letter is that some teachers had come to Colossae and they were telling the people that to be really, truly spiritual, you needed something more than Jesus. You needed more than that simple gospel. You needed more than than the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Look at Jesus. He is all you need. Jesus is the reason you are on the map. Yeah, there was a time, Paul tells us, when you were alienated from God, when you weren't yet on the map. And he's referring to the fact that the Colossian Christians were primarily Gentiles, and for thousands of years, God had entrusted his plan to just Israel. So Paul's also saying that that as Gentiles, as non-Jewish, you know, pagan worshipers, whatever they had worshipped, if they'd worshipped anything, but they'd worshipped other gods in one way or another. And the thing is, you always become like the God you worship, right? You always become like the God you worship. So these Gentile, idol-worshiping Colossians, you know, pre-church, had been trapped in destructive, dehumanizing patterns of sin and fear and shame. But now, he says, they've been reconciled to God through Jesus. It was done. It was finished on the cross. There was nothing else they needed for that. No special secret knowledge to find. No spiritual gymnastics they needed to perform. Now they had been included in God's plan of redeeming and restoring all things, including themselves. Now they were on the map. And being on the map isn't just a matter of being in or out. A map is meant to lead you somewhere, right? Being on the map means that you're caught up in everything that God is doing. Jesus is making you new. Jesus is restoring and transforming you. That's the reason for a lot of what we go through in life, isn't it? When we start to see that, it gives us a whole lot more peace. It's not random. God leads us forward even when we aren't maybe aware of it all the time into things that transform our lives so that we can be the people we always wanted to be. 
Jesus is restoring. He's transforming you. Jesus is the pattern and the blueprint. And so Jesus is making you like him. So look at Jesus. He says, remain grounded. Remain steadfast in the faith. Not shifted away from the hope of the gospel. What's the hope of the gospel? Talked about last week. Resurrection, right? New creation. Where are we going with this? This is where we're headed. The faith tells us we can entrust our whole lives to Jesus. We can, we can trust his love for us. We can trust his care for us. We can trust where the map is leading us, even when it's painful and uncomfortable. We might be down in the forest of life, and we can't see that well where we are or where we're going because of all the trees but we are on the map, Paul's saying. We can look at Jesus. We can follow him, and we know that hope we have, that confident expectation we have is resurrection. It's new creation. We are headed somewhere, and it's, it's, it's a really, really good thing. <laughs> Our confident hope is that we are becoming the fully human men and women we were created to be overflowing with life that never runs out. That's what God is doing. Amen. Yeah. So the last few verses here, starting in 24, says Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wants to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with the, his strength that works powerfully in me. <clears throat> See, those false teachers in Colossae wanted to initiate the Colossian believers into their deep, secret, mysterious knowledge. And Paul said, well, there is a mystery but it's not hidden anymore. It's not secret. Anybody can discover it. And we don't fully understand how it works. That's why it's a mystery. But we can trust it because we trust the source. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's an amazing mystery, isn't it? Christ in us. Christ in each one of you. Christ in us together. And that is what gives us the hope of glory, the hope that if Christ is in us, we really are moving toward new creation. We really are moving toward resurrection. See, it's not just that we've been shown a map and told to follow it. You know, like, get going, people. Get on the map. Get moving. Uh, it's not even just that we're told to look at Jesus and follow him as though Jesus were out there somewhere and we have to try and keep up. Jesus is the map, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we open our lives to the truth of the gospel, when we say yes and simply receive that reconciliation with God, which has already taken place, then Jesus, who is the way, you know, Jesus, who is the map, 
comes and dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he leads us in the way we should go. Another way to say that is God plants the seed of himself, the seed of his kingdom in us, in each of you, in us together. And that seed begins to grow so that we become little Christs. And that seed will grow and grow as we keep on trusting Jesus until one day it bursts into full bloom and we are resurrected into new creation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So look at Jesus. Amen? Well, I am pretty sure that as you're listening to me on all this today, I'm, I'm guessing there may be some of you who don't know if you're on the map or not. You've maybe never really, maybe you've never really thought about it. Or you've never really opened your life to Jesus. You've never really received his gift of grace and mercy. Never really said, I want you, Jesus, to be the one who leads me through this life. You know, not just go to church, not just be religious, but I want you to lead me through this life. I want you to be the one who I can trust for everything. Well, that's, that's you. Jesus is inviting you to take that step today. And I'm also pretty sure that there are some of us here who know we're on the map, but we also know that some of those other things, things instead of Jesus or things in addition to Jesus, have become central to shaping our lives. You know how if you're using Google Maps and you're like following the instructions to get somewhere, you sometimes have to hit that recenter icon so you can see where you are again because it's, it's gone on and you're still back here. You have to hit that recenter icon. Well, I think Jesus is inviting us to recenter on him today. Push the recenter icon. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when we do that, it is more than just a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. It's an encounter with him. We encounter his presence in grace, and we receive his presence in grace through this meal. So if you don't know if you're on the map or not, when you come up to receive communion, make that your way of receiving everything Jesus has done for you, his grace, his forgiveness, his life. Give yourself to Jesus. Receive him into your life and, and put your trust in him. And if you need to hit that recenter icon, you can do that as you come up to communion. You can view this meal as an exchange even, giving to Jesus what has taken that central place in your life and receiving Jesus, welcoming him as the only one who's central and supreme for you. So we can all come to this meal looking at Jesus and receiving Jesus. Amen? Amen. So if you're online, I'd encourage you to gather what you need to celebrate the meal uh, with us now. Uh, here I need four volunteers to come up and, and serve, and please wear a mask if you're serving uh, to uh, keep us all, just honor the safety issues. Um, we practice open communion here, which means all of you are welcome to come up. 
uh, and receive. And as you come up, what we do is we receive a piece of the bread, we dip it in the cup, and then you can partake then right away or go back to your seat and do so. Uh, we'll start from the back rows, move toward the front, and uh, there's a map to direct your path. Um, doesn't say you are here on there, but you can figure that part out. Yeah. That would be confusing because you're all in different places, right? So, yeah. So let me share the scripture and um, uh, pray. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is